Welcome to Take Care. This is the podcast that helps you understand the background and habits of change makers. Host Rish Sharma and his guests give you the wisdom to help you learn a little more and get a bit better every episode. Hey everyone, welcome to Take Care. Today's guest is Ben Goodwin, the CEO and founder of Olipop. Welcome to the show, Ben. Pleasure to have you here. Yeah, thanks so much, Rich. Great to be on. So I'd love for you to give a background um, of yourself and then the journey that led to the starting of Olipop. Yeah, my pleasure. It's, it's definitely been a, lo- a long one, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> Honestly, probably the the nexus for this whole path that I've been on, because I'm a I'm, you know a serial entrepreneur more or less at this point. I've been a product developer for 15 years. This is my third beverage company I've, I've worked on, and really I've had a, a pretty kind of market focus on digestive health and microbiome health for a good portion of my career. So it's it's been a it's been an elongated process and the nexus for it really began actually when I was a teenager. I, I grew up under somewhat challenging circumstances and, and a big part of that was I ate not a great diet. <laughs> um, and, you know, they, they, that kind of contributed to some anxiety and I, I was I had too much weight on me as, as a kid and as a teenager. And I had this weird epiphany one day at 14 where I was just like, this is not contributing to a good life this is not going to lead to a good life and so like literally overnight i i kind of changed my approach i i actually ended up losing about 50 pounds in, in less than a year and changed a bunch of things in my life and really started to focus on nutrition and as the years went on i noticed it didn't just help me with my physical health and my energy levels but it also really seemed to have impact on for kind of lack of a better term my my consciousness, like my mental clarity, my emotional stability, my speed of thought, my scale of thought. And I, and I became really fascinated with the idea of nutrition as a tool for self-actualization and personal development and this kind of relationship between these, these kind of psycho-emotional cognitive aspects of our being and, and what we're taking into our system. So that was of real interest to me. My other interest was music and electronic music actually. And I, I was like, had this weird thing. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was like throwing these raves at 1920, 20, early 20s kind of thing. And I was also like, maybe I want to get into to food or, and, and I've always had a real entrepreneurial streak and, and it, all, it all kind of came together. In fact, in high school, I had, before coconuts were even, like young coconuts were even a thing, uh, a buddy of mine and I, created this farmer's market booth where we would actually like sell Thai coconuts and crack them open for, for people. And but that was before, that was like 17 years ago or something at this mm-hmm. point. So it's like a good amount before the kind of coconut water craze. So I've been doing that kind of stuff for a while. Then it all came together. I actually threw this, I threw this show and through that show, I met this guy who ended up becoming my mentor. He's actually a civil rights activist. Uh, he's passed away now. His name is Edward Lawson. He actually won a Supreme Court case by himself in the 1980s. He's uh, with no legal representation. He's the re- reason why it's illegal for the police to ask for ID without probable cause. So I started. It's incredible. Work- yeah, I started working under him actually at this theater in Monterey, and I got and I got inspired because he actually didn't have a legal background. He just went to the Berkeley Law Library and, and started. Um, researching everything needed for uh, his legal case, and which is a little bit, there's a certainly like a, there's a certain amount of hubris to that. But uh, in my early twenties, I felt I felt pretty inspired by it. So I, I actually dropped out of college and just decided to 
decided to just get right into entrepreneurialism and product development. I joined up with a friend who had a kombucha company that, and that, you know, I helped do ops and production and, and product development and helped got off that, that get off the ground for a couple of years. Then I transitioned into kind of assorted product development for a number of years, like high-end esoteric stuff, which was adequately financially rewarding, but didn't make me feel like I was accomplishing enough in society, mm-hmm. needed a, a mission. But then I started, uh, and also, but the kombucha company did, when I was with Kombucha Botanica, I did learn what the microbiome was. Mm-hmm. And I learned more about probiotics and I learned about the brain gut axis, which is it's really fascinating. You actually produce the majority of your key transmitters for your brain in, in or the precursors for them in your micro in your digestive microbiome and they get shipped up to your brain and i was like oh this is the thing so it all just kind of came together over time i was motivated towards entrepreneurialism i was motivated towards positive social change i was motivated around personal development and the microbiome and, and taking a scientific approach to it and then in my mid-20s I started working on this product called, it wasn't called anything at the time, but it ended up being called OB, which is this fermented water keeper soda replacement thing. I did about four years of research and development on that mm-hmm. with a microbiologist and an organic chemist. That took a long time. That's actually where near the end of that R&D process where I met David Lester, who's my business partner. He was my business partner then, and he works with me at, at Olipop as well. And then, so we, we got that off the ground, got that on market. We actually ended up selling that after two or three years. And then, and that was in like 2016. That's the, that's it basically. And then after that, like we just, it was both kind of exhausted because beverage startups are, are no joke going through R&D and inception, product launch, exit. That's, that's quite a mouthful. But I went off to Japan and I looked at some research and we took a little breather and, and we did decide that there were kind of these meaningful shifts in microbiome science and that there was some really interesting stuff to get into that warranted another product that was focused on and in fact would have a really meaningful utility in society. And so that kind of is effectively was the basis for, for Olipop. Thank you for breaking that down and congrats on all the success. So just curious, how did, just go a little bit more detail, how did you go about, without the traditional background and whatnot, of learning about everything about the microbiome to create the formulations? I know you worked with a, uh, with a chemist and whatnot, but was it purely dependent on that relationship? Did, what types of research did you do on your own to verify the type of product that you were looking for? Yeah, totally. I, I, am, a, I am an insane person that's uh, it's helpful to be slightly insane or if you're going to be an entrepreneur i'm very it's like when i get motivated around stuff i really thrive off of dense conceptual information i I really thrive off of systems thinking and that stuff And, and i also i have this weird memory where it's like if something interests me or fascinates me i just I have this vault-like kind of memory system that is just part of how my brain works. So it tends to be, it's like if I get really interested in something, I will chase down a lot of information about it and, and then I'll retain a lot of that information. And then if I, especially if I then, you know, start working on something related to it and I am working with microbiologists or I am actually reviewing, you know, clinical trials or, I'm talking to researchers or because for example, like right now with Olipop, we're working with uh, Steven Lindemann, who's the head of the complex carbohydrates department at Purdue. And we're actually doing research with Purdue around Olipop. We're working with Joseph Petrosino, who's the head of the microbiology department at Baylor College of Medicine, his right hand uh, man who's in charge of the Baylor uh, microbiology labs, Robert Britton. They're on our scientific advisory board. We're also doing research with them. So it's just, as I, there's just, there's a lot of different, it's a multifaceted approach to learning, which is a combination of dealing with, I've gotten to the point in my career where I can 
I can get to, and I'm lucky enough to ha- to be able to build relationships with, quite frankly, just some of the best people in the world in this space. That obviously accelerates your learning. And it also allows you to really stress test ideas and say, because oftentimes I will amalgamate a bunch of pieces of information. So I'll read a handful of books. I'll look at a handful of, of studies. I'll have a handful of conversations. I'll synthesize that information. And I'll also then start to come up with some of my own like theories and interpretations based on that information that I'm reviewing. And one of the great things about having some of these great kind of luminaries um, available to me is that I can go, hey, here's a bunch of stuff I'm thinking about to the extent that we, I am able to get the time on with them. But here's like some stuff I'm thinking about. Is this reasonable based on what you've seen? And, and that kind of helps me to go, that helps me to explore a lot of different things. I know I'm being a little long-winded here, but one thing that I think is also really interesting about our engagement with these different researchers, we're really lucky to have these people involved and also Dr. Jens Walter, who we're doing human dietary study with, is there's oftentimes a really big gap between research that gets done at a lab or at a university mm-hmm. and that the awareness of that work hitting even the medical community, much less the consumer population. It can be a 10-year, five to 10-year gap before it hits the medical community and the five to 10-year gap before there's actual like widespread awareness. And, and so when you are really enthusiastic about science, when you do actually know some of what you're talking about <laughs> as often as you can, and, and you can really evidence to your partners that you are trying to accelerate some of this cutting edge, but really robust science into a faster, more meaningful, authentic kind of consumer health experience, that is pretty motivating to them because it's, it's like, it, it helps to shorten up that lead time on their work, actually making an impact. Thank you for breaking that down. And so I'm just curious, you've obviously been a part of some very successful beverage companies and whatnot and it's a very saturated category as you alluded to so what would you say makes a as a good insight for somebody that may think that they have also some beverage that they're looking to start what are the key insights or things to know that you're on to something in regards to starting a beverage company it's a how much time do you have <laughs> that is i i would say there's like probably hundreds if not thousands of amalgamated lessons i can try to like condense it into the most look that the first thing that's being worthy it's worthy of being aware of is that consumer packaged goods in general and then beverage even more so i like to call it business on expert mode and and I, and again i was talking about hubris earlier <laughs> there is there is an aspect of that it's a it's a tough thing i think because a lot of there's, I find there's two kind of brackets of companies that get started in the food and beverage space. And, and this is a generalism, but I, this is the trends that I've seen. So you've got the inexperienced operator, but who's like really authentic in what they're trying to do and deeply passionate and really believes in, in the mission of food and, or, or beverage and is trying to bring something meaningful forward to people and the challenge that i see a lot of these kind of operators run into is they just have no idea the wood the wood chipper the human wood chipper that they are about to go through because it's the beverage industry and consumer packaged goods is brutal it's it's a brutal like the distribution the capital requirements, the distribution hurdles, the intrinsic, you have all the intrinsic catch-22s of starting a business. What's that, that thing of like, you need a team to raise the money, but you need the money to, to hire the team. Like you run into constant catch-22s. It's a business of scale. So if that's a, it's a lower margin, higher volume product, which means mm-hmm. there's a lot of, like I said, like capital requirements, which that means unless you're independently quite wealthy, yeah. then you're going to be needing to raise capital. That's a whole other beast. Raising cash, working with investor confidence, choosing the right investors, 
setting up governance systems correctly. So basically, I just think like a, a, there's a lot of like really good ideas out there, and there's a lot of like really genuine desires in in that type of operator, but just the acumen or the lack of kind of visibility into the hard realities of this business model is some, is oftentimes is oftentimes missing. And also sometimes associated with that is like they don't know how to make their margins work or there's not a very practical set of solutions to scale and those things need to be overcome. Or the other type is kind of more the seasoned like MBA or CPG kind of professional slash executive mm-hmm. who more often than not, they certainly have more wherewithal in terms of being aware of what the business reality is going to be. They might have more access to capital. They might have more uh, cognition around scalability, stuff like that. But oftentimes, like basically the more or less like the heart of that business is usually not there. Like Mm -hmm. they did a market analysis. They found some white space or they found, they found a trend that they want to capitalize on. And now they've built this like pretty hollow product to go after that space. So honestly, if you can find the right synergy between those two dynamics, um, then that is, and that's actually like a, that's actually something that I think has really come together between David Lester and myself, who is is my business partner, is his background. um, He comes from, he spent a decade at Diageo as as a brand manager and an innovation leader at Diageo, which is obviously a big multinational spirits company. And so he was able to bring some of that thinking and some of that structure and some of that polish into the equation, which was a really solid counterweight to me. And now we've been working together for eight, eight or plus years. So mm-hmm. we, a lot of our skill sets have now rubbed off onto each other. And I think it's balanced more of us out more, but that's, I would say I, your idea is great. There's a lot of ideas, but it's just, you have to be mindful that in food and beverage, there's this astronomically high failure rate. And so (laughs) it doesn't mean you should get involved. It just means that you need to be ready to put in more blood, sweat, and tears than you ever thought you had. And you just need to have a good three-dimensional awareness of all the different aspects that are a part of the reality of this business model and find ways to account for them. Thank you for breaking that down and giving the, the cautionary warning yeah. for anybody who's doing it. But just since you brought that up and the difficulties of the ups and downs, just curious to see with Olipop or any of the previous businesses that you helped to found, what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced on the way that, and then how'd you work through overcoming them? There's one particular example. Yeah, there are a lot of, I think that to be honest, most there, there are like, there are challenges roughly bucket maybe into to three different things. There's challenges of environment, there's challenges of skill, and then there's challenges of, I guess you'd call it like emotion, right? So challenges of environment include the where the country is with the economy, where consumer trends are, what the marketplace looks like, what the what's going on with different factors. Yeah, exactly. Then there's issues of skill. So it's okay. Do you know how to make a PNL? Do you know how to do you know how to sell into a retailer? Do you know how to actually work with a co-packer? So those are challenges. And I think both of those things, if you get the right people around the table, are ultimately like reasonably solved. There again, it's still business on expert mode. So look, it's just you're looking at a pretty daunting uh, mountain, but those things are more more achievable. I think that it's like the biggest piece of, of most entrepreneurs' lives, it, it actually lives in the emotional realm. And I think that if they can really wrap their heads around that, like the sooner they can wrap their heads around that, the better. It's like uh, there's that Emotional Intelligence 2.0 book. It's, there's like good clinical research that shows that like when you start getting up to these executive levels mm-hmm. and you start predict predicting job performance job success the higher and higher you get up the totem pole it's 80 to 90 percent of job success is predicted 
through e through eq or emotional intelligence and that's really i think that that's it's like it's things like the stress and the pressure and believing in your vision and being able to assemble resources about it having integrity irrespective of the fact that oftentimes when you're starting things up from scratch there's a good amount of at least felt pressure and borderline even desperation as part of the equation and it's really about having a good system for introspection keeping yourself sane and healthy being able to do things which make you that generate fear in your body or generate you know negative emotional response in your body and increase what's called in psychology your kind of window of tolerance it's like you mm -hmm. have to be able to keep a high level of executive functioning more or less under uh, situations of extreme stress so you have to become better at not reacting to stressful situations um, from a place of stress and you also have to be better yeah at, at finding ways to work quickly through through that stress because it, you'll get really worn down and then you're not using as much of your neocortex to make decisions and then it's gonna, <laughs> it can spiral out and especially if you are leading a vision you need to create a, a safe and healthy place for people to work and you need to create an envision that inspires and, and inspires and doesn't feel like bullshit. And, and so there's a lot of like emotional development that comes with all these pieces. And I would say that that is the one that I think that people probably ne neglect the most and would get a lot more traction out of it if they invested there. I think that is prescient information. It's a, uh... Entrepreneurship, they say, is the greatest self-improvement program, just from an emotional standpoint. So, yes, you know, <laughs> I agree with that. Yeah, hundred percent. So, just curious, if you go to olipop.com or I'm sorry, drinkolipop.com, have you noticed that the brand really trades on nostalgia with the flavors, with like the with the identity, the brand identity? So what was the decision like how was the decision made to move in a direction of kind of trading on nostalgia rather than some brands maybe in the category that tried to create a brand new type of brand what was the thinking behind that yeah absolutely I mean, it goes it has it has pretty deep roots philosophically for myself and for david and something i it's a concept that I've been thinking about for many years, which is really around meeting meeting consumers where they are. And when you start to look at things like, okay, let's say I want to, obviously I made a product that, and we have a company that really focuses on microbiome and digestive health. So what is that? And is in this like carbonated sparkling space. So, <laughs> okay. So like what's out there. So you've got like kombucha, which is another product that is typically thought to be good for digestive health. Now, there isn't a bunch of clinical, there is no clinical evidence that supports that claim, <laughs> irrespectively. That's the, and I drink kombucha, right? But the reality is the reality. It's like, there isn't yep. a lot of clinical evidence to support it. Anyway, so my point is, irrespective, put, putting that aside, it's this vinegary drink that costs four to six dollars, depending on where you are. Heavy glass bottle, new, oftentimes new age packet packaging. And so you are expecting a lot of consumer behavioral shifts in order for someone to want to reach for and regularly consume that product. And the result is that kombucha is like a billion dollar category, but it's kind of, it's stagnating and even declining a bit now. Like doesn't mean mm -hmm. it'll happen forever, but it, it does like early indicators indicate showing that maybe kombucha doesn't have a ton more space to grow has reached a ceiling okay so then you got like sparkling water which is doing a little bit better it's like a four billion dollar category but the ready to drink section the ready to drink aspect of soda alone is 40 to 60 billion dollars in the u.s with 90 percent household penetration and that's not even getting to onto on-premise and, and fountain and, and some of the other formats of that that product comes in the scale is just astronomically different and i think that the one of the things that I think has happened on the marketing side that, again, it's like a philosophical point for us, but it's 
food and beverages at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So it's foundational for everybody. Mm -hmm. So it's also the ultimate vehicle to bring people together. And it's a bit of a bummer that most of the products that seem to bring, quote, bring people together right now are fundamentally have some pretty material issues on a health basis, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, whether that's alcohol or whether that's soda. I, I think like the, the jury's pretty in that li liquid cake is not that good for you. <laughs> it's, but at the same time, like the, the fun foundational science behind Olipop is this recognition that like your average hunter-gatherer uh, diet, which is what human bodies and human microbiomes are designed to consume, that average hunter-gatherer diet is getting 100 to 200 grams of fiber a day, over 100 grams of prebiotics a day. They're getting over, you know, 14, 1500 different nutritional inputs every year versus the average American, according to the USDA, is getting 10 to 15 grams of fiber, three to five grams of prebiotics. And most Americans get like 80, 70, 80% of the food from 20 different food groups, like wheat, corn, soy, dairy, meat, et cetera. So we have these diets that are totally out of alignment with what's actually good for our body, what's good for our microbiome. And it's a mass scale issue. So if you're going to try to create a mass scale solution, you correspondingly need then a mass scale vehicle that minimizes the minimizes the divisive nature of some food and beverage marketing that's out there and also maximizes more or less like meeting consumers where they are. I don't, I don't really think that we're going to, change things on a large scale by like shaming consumers around the things that they really like that they really enjoy that they have nostalgia around and so that really uh, represents the philosophical base for us and and it literally is a philosophical like, this did not start i didn't start thinking about okay let's disrupt soda with the stuff by reading a bunch of you know, like charts i actually mm -hmm. was just like how do i do the most good with this product got high quality people on board who felt that that was a worthwhile thing to do. And then now because of the way we're approaching it, because of the sea change in the marketplace and a number of other factors is really working out, but it, it really did come from this philosophical base of like this, if we could pull this off, this would be a worthwhile thing to do. Thank you for breaking that down. So I, I saw, you can see that what you just discussed described led to the, ch the chosen flavors that you started with but what's next for olipop what do you expect in terms of is it going to be expansion into new flavors or any other categories yeah i always have to be mindful because i'm not totally sure like we what 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 i can announce and what we're because we've got a bunch of really great stuff cooking i mean you know we just went live with uh harris teeter like we just got Har brought harris teeter on we're actually going to be uh, rolling out a 7-Eleven test, which is awesome. We have another really major retailer I can't announce quite yet, but we're very excited about some of our big conventional partners. We expect to have pretty material expansions with Whole Foods. We um, are hoping that there's going to be some pretty material developments on that front as well. So I'm seeing very great developments on the retailer and door expansion side, uh, we just picked up Rayleigh's and, and Lucky's in, in, on the West Coast. R really great kind of, and, and what I love about it as well is like our product does extremely well, like uh, once in a decade kind of sales numbers in, in the natural channel, but we also perform really strongly in the conventional channel. And that is exactly what we're looking for. So some really great, updates and, and more coming soon on on the kind of retailer side and then yeah there's new flavors so we are doing an orange cream which is basically uh it sounds like it's like yeah. orange vanilla that is actually so we have the kind of orange squeeze which is our version of orange soda but we just were getting so many requests for an orange vanilla slash orange cream and <laughs> i felt uh and i, I was torn because I love that flavor myself. I I really did want to do an orange soda because I thought it, it is it was really prime for disruption, but I felt torn. And so then when all the customer feedback came in, you know, we've literally gotten hundreds, like hundreds and hundreds of requests for an orange cream. So I was like, all right, how do we slot this in? And then we were chatting to Whole Foods actually about doing some sort of summer exclusive with them. Mm -hmm. And 
So we're going to be doing this orange cream national uh, seasonal exclusive with Whole Foods. So I'm very excited about. And then, yeah, we've got some other, we've got some cool stuff. We're looking at some multi-pack capabilities. And then we have another um, full, a full-time flavor coming out in summer that I can't announce quite yet, but okay. it's going to, yeah, people are going to be very excited about it. It's like our second most requested flavor. And then, yeah, and then I have my I, my site on, I'm hoping to do probably maybe, we're not 100% secure, but maybe two more full-time flavor launches next year as well, which are also being driven pretty heavily from consumer uh, excitement. So it's really, like, and there's some other innovation that I'm working on as well right now. So there's actually a lot of, there's a lot of pots bubbling. There's pots bubbling on the research side as we're finishing up our research with Purdue and Baylor. We're gonna, like I said, we're gonna be participating in a human trial. There's a range of different really cool innovation projects going that could be pretty game changing. And there's new flavor developments and there's format developments and there's retailer expansions all over the place. So it's, there's a lot going on. And uh, I think it's gonna be pretty good for the consumers to follow us and, and like what we're up to. Yeah, that's really exciting. If you could just explain a little bit what the trials that you're working on are with Baylor and some other ones that you mentioned. Basically we're doing what's called in vitro research with Purdue and Baylor College of Medicine. Now Purdue is more like a standard in vitro microbiome kind of test process where they basically take like fecal inoculant cultures and they run our proprietary blend against those cultures and they see what it does and like how the underlying microorganisms react which is you know basically then you extrapolate that data by saying okay this is what all this stuff is doing in an in vitro environment i.e out of out of a living organism now how would we interpret that that would likely play out based on this data in a human body baylor is also an in vitro study but it's but it's actually they have a very arguably like in my mind and this is why i was really excited to work with them in the first place i think they have one of the most sophisticated in vitro like artificial gut artificial microbiome systems like in the world right now so they can really replicate a human gut in really a really innovative way they can replicate like intestinal walls and they can study like a lot of stuff we wanted to do both of those, we wanted to do our, the, the work with both of these organizations with their different systems just to see does the data come out similar? Does it come out differently? Or just like, what is each set of tests telling us? So that's going to be exciting to go through. And these are basically like this anytime you do your first round of work, like you're looking for results as much as you're looking at does this system of testing work in this environment? One of the things that's great about having relationships with these with these researchers, and then of course their obvious like association with these universities is that we have a pretty robust uh, and extremely professional setup to be working with the highest possible standards around the work, but we've managed to set up these kind of systems which are reasonably cost-effective and flexible. So it allows us to do tests and then do more tests and then do more tests and try different things, which I think is really great. And then with Dr. Jens Walter, who is an amazing researcher, he's he's the top 1% most cited microbiome researchers in the world. So he's like the, the cream of the cream in that space. And we were really lucky that he's taken such an interest in our product and, and what we're up to. And I can't announce all the details of his study yet, but he's he's doing a large scale human dietary intervention trial, looking at the inclusion of of a higher fiber and some other kind of aspects, and seeing how it affects people. Yeah, we're really excited. We're the only branded beverage that's participating in the trial, and we're really excited to see that one play out over over time. Yeah, all exciting stuff. Um... You also mentioned that you're looking to develop some long-term fl flavors. Just curious, what's the process, the product development cycle in regards to deciding what the next flavor is or going about creating a flavor? 
for the brand. Yeah. I am the sole formulator, which is insane. It's definitely insane. Because I also have a company to run with uh, David. It's like, it's a lot of work. But I, I just honestly, like, I have developed my own approach to flavor development and, 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 and product formulation that it was probably pretty different from what a lot of other people who are in the space or who are food scientists um, kind of utilize. And so I, yeah, I really trust my process and yeah, I basically just crank it out. It takes a lot, it takes a lot of time to get everything just right, but I have such a relationship with what the flavor, with what I want the flavor profiles to be. And I have my own kind of synesthetic approach to getting all the flavors where I want them and but it definitely seems like it's resonating it, you know, the the taste of the product um, especially compared to the sugar levels and the fiber levels and stuff really seem to resonate be one of the biggest resonators with consumers and seem to be driving a lot of repeat purchase and then in terms of like how we decide the flavor itself it used to honestly it used to just be David and myself really starting with me just kind of being like what do I think is going to work what do I think is going to resonate with consumers again, just based on my experience and what do I think I can do a really good job making? It has gotten, it has developed a little more since then because we now have this like multi thousand <clears throat> request database that we've pulled from surveying customers or customers sending in requests on our social or emailing requests. People are unfortunately like really happy to tell you about what flavors they want mm -hmm. to make because they're excited about it so we are in this cool space now where we can look at research around what flavors work with customers and we have our own internal research around what our customer group is really looking for and that that is really helpful because now i can it gives me some working parameters so i can still like, go off and make the thing that i just think is going to be like a because no one would have predicted like strawberry vanilla is one of our main flavors and in many of our retailers it's the number one selling skew mm -hmm. no nobody would have predicted it's because i happen to have this vision around making it taste like a those like strawberry cream saver candies like i, I that i had when i was a kid and i've always really loved and so i think there are still probably some more tricks up my sleeve in that regard in the future on these like really nostalgic flavor profiles that are going to be the, like, these cult favorites. Those will be really fun to work on and roll out. But then in terms of things that we know are going to really make our customer base excited, there's a lot of great, great data coming in that we can pull from. And so blending that approach and then I, I just bang out the formula basically. That's currently how we do it. Yeah, interesting stuff. Let's move. I just want to move the conversation now. You mentioned, you know, previously about the emotional wherewithal and investing into that for an entrepreneur. And so, on this, uh, on our podcast, we like to talk about the business itself and kind of the, the journey led up to it, but also the kind of the holistic, personal side, the stuff behind on a on an emotional and personal level that kind of helped for people to propel themselves. So yeah. just curious to see if there's any habits or rituals um, in your life or you do make sure to do with, you know, your company, et cetera, to help propel you guys to, to perform at expert mode, as you say. Yeah, totally. For myself, person, so things that I do, very regularly so i do i intermittent fast most days i usually i personally usually don't start eating until somewhere between three and five in the afternoon i do caffeinate in the morning so <laughs> it could be a little bit jittery but there's some good research around the effects it has on your hormones and, and your brain and your neuroplasticity and i do feel like i i've gotten the benefit I mean, you have to learn how to do it because you get pretty hangry when you're like learning how to do it but um once you're in swing with it the other thing that i find that i absolutely have to do is i have to exercise and i have to exercise hard so i can't just like phone it in with like a little tiny jog i jump roped full tilt for 30 minutes straight yesterday and that's or i go lift weights or do whatever 
so exercise, intermittent fasting, I don't get enough sleep. I do know that I'd be better if I did get more sleep. I do try to eat very healthily. I do try to kind of minimize alcohol as much as I can. Sometimes I do a better job of that than others, but that is definitely a goal. And I think if I did get more sleep, that would be really helpful to me. And then the other part of it as well, Meditation is really useful. I, I do that off and on. I need to, there's another one thing, nothing I need to do more, but the bill, you really need to be able to check in with yourself and almost defragment yourself. Building in those different break times to work with your nervous system, to work with kind of what's floating around in your brain and in your body and in your emotional systems is really important. One thing I used to do before the pandemic was I'm a big fan of what I call thermal cycling. So I really like to go to the sauna and get as hot as it's humanly possible and go to like a cold plunge and, and go back and forth between those two. I found those, I find that massively helpful mm-hmm. for resetting my nervous system and, and giving me like time to, to detach a little bit from the day to day and like pull, pull my perspective back a bit. So those are all like personal habits that I really recommend quite a bit. Some of them I'm really good about and then some of them I need to do a better job on. And yeah, as far- oh, good. I was just going to say, there's some of those that I, I got to try myself. So, Yeah, no, the, I mean, that combo, like if you actually can stick the majority of those things on a regular basis, like it, it makes a massive difference. Um, yeah, as far as team goes, there is obviously we encourage people to take care of themselves in emotional, mental and physical ways. And there's, we do we invest a lot in our culture. We invest a lot in psychological safety, personal development, alignment to mission, psychological awareness, interpersonal awareness, communication skills. These things are all like really critical for creating like a, a tight team that works well together, that kind of understands why they're working so hard and it's meaningful to them one of the best things a leader can do is empower their people. They need to expect a lot out of their people and they also need to model kind of behavior that is in accordance with expecting a lot out of yourself and expecting a lot out of other, other people. And then, but then they also need to be there to really support and foster trust. And I strongly believe in kind of encouraging the development that goes beyond the surface because it's like, just the simple reality of humans i have a decent amount of psychology in, in my background and there's also this really cool psychological test called the hogan test that i've been uh certified in now so this we want to a lot of times people just want to pretend oh yeah you just bring the person in and they don't perform and you just like you just get rid of them or you just keep yeah. hearkening on them but look the simple reality is that like most reoccurring chronic issues that people have started many years before they came into your business and a lot of most people's issues stem from their childhood so what whereas while you don't want to become like a therapy organization we don't have time to give each other therapy all day long yeah. or there's got to be healthy boundaries you also want to create a space where it's like if somebody can feel safe enough and motivated enough and you can generate the, the kind of psychological principles and awareness where somebody is willing in your environment on their own time to go in and start working on some deeper things it does create a, a pretty meaningful change for them and their quality of life which then increases the affinity they have for the the culture and and, and the business but also and, and increases productivity and increases their like i said their quality of life and their quality of experience it's like a lot of the ways our businesses are set up and the ways our law, the way our laws are set up is they actually get in the way of people being able to have some of those conversations and work towards some of that stuff. And, which I think, which I understand why a lot of those laws exist, but they are oftentimes, I think, built for the lowest common denominator and they're not particularly conducive to that type of development work. But I think while trying to be as pragmatic about it as possible an orientation of that kind is something that we definitely strive for thank you for sharing that and so i'm just going to go to the final questions 
what's the most generous thing somebody's ever done for you? I certainly, obviously, when there's somebody who is a, obviously, when there are people who are leaders in the space who have given their time or been willing to be contributory in a, especially in a difficult situation, but just in general, um, and that kind of feedback can be really impactful in a positive way. That's really generous. Oftentimes, and again, this goes back to just like entrepreneurial lifestyle in general, unfortunately, and certainly in CPG, it's even more so this way. A lot of times the kind of, it's a, out, it's like a hand out front and a knife behind the back. It's like people help you because they want something from you. People want to give you money, but they also want to maximize and get into the business. And then they have like control and all this kind of stuff. And it's, you know, there's a lot of ego and there's a lot of like power moves and stuff like that. So when somebody legitimately is just like, oh yeah, no, I see what you guys are going through and I'd love to pitch in or I'm really excited about your idea or or they even like, quite frankly, is like as sad as this is, like they even just want to conduct straight up no bullshit business with you. <laughs> to be honest, that by itself can be somewhat refreshing and generous for people not to have an ulterior motive and for people to be self-aware contributory in the nature. I'd say the other thing that's been really generous is like my team, like the people who, and my, and my business partner, David, I pulled more emotional resonance out of that than almost anything because these are people who I'm just a dude, right. Who had a, had a, had a vision and worked hard on it, but I have a lot of weaknesses. I have a lot of areas for growth. I have a lot of things I'm not good at. And so it's like definitely going to take a village to build something material and to have these people who are competent and care about what they're doing and have a lot to offer want to participate in that and, and get behind the vision and are there when I'm having a shit day or are there when the business is going through up and down. That is incredibly meaningful to me. Honestly, I would say that is a kind of a part of the generosity spectrum that I find like the most meaningful. And then what's, uh, what's your favorite new product that you've tried recently? Oh, geez. I got it. This isn't like that. This isn't that. It's, I don't know. It's just not that innovative or mind blowing. To be honest with you, I actually am a big fan of, of a lot of what Siete is doing. I oftentimes, mm-hmm. I oftentimes think of there's some aspects of what they're up to that I think are reminiscent of us. And just in terms of like a lot of their, a lot of their products that it's, it's like, there's not a lot of compromise and they, and they got to a really good product that tastes really good and is actually healthy. Mm-hmm. You look at their chips and it's, it's avocado Delicious, oil. Yeah. yeah. And it's cassava flour. And they just came out with these new chips, like these, these like scooper chips and they put like pumpkin powder in it. And I'm like, yes, that is exactly what I want. It's like, still got the avocado oil. still got the cassava. You didn't cheap out and go like white rice flour or corn. Like they don't, it's, it's not cheaped out. It's also not a cheap product, but it's, I, I just like it. It's genuinely, I'm not compromising. It's like a snacky, delicious thing that I'm actually like very, truly minimally compromising on. And the ingredient profile is like pretty intelligent. So I understand it's like not a groundbreaking, like new thing that I've discovered from the depths, but I am, I've just been pretty consistently impressed by them. And, and those dippers, like, because the dippers is the attractive thing, right? Yeah. You're like, oh, cool. I can scoop up my guacamole or whatever. Yep. But then it's, it's like, holy shit, I get home and I'm like, they've got, it's got pumpkin? Like pumpkin is a nutritional powerhouse. It's awesome. Yep. That kind of stuff. They make great products. Yeah. So the final question before I let you go is, if you were to have a dinner party in a post-COVID world, dead or alive, you can invite three people. Who would you invite and why? Oh my God, Yeah. I did actually have to think about this a little bit. Three people I'm inviting? Okay, so this is a little bit weird. I would definitely invite, and this is going to sound super sketchy. Okay, well, here's the thing. 
am I just talking to them? Because I've thought about this before, but it's been like, they've got to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. So is this one of those things where it's, I'm, because of the it changes a lot. Like if I can actually get real information out of them, that's one thing. But if I'm just, if it's, if it's just me and they are who they are organically, because for example, I would really, yes. if I had to have an, a truly tell all conversation, I would have, I would sit down with Vladimir Putin, which is like an insane thing. But it's if you actually want to learn about the real dark underbelly of the world, that's the guy you would go talk to. Yeah. But I would only have that conversation under the premise that the dude would actually really tell me reality. Otherwise you'd get nothing. So mm -hmm. I think that's kind of a, Kind of so let's go in the premise that you're going to get the real information. Okay, so I'd probably pull like a Putin in there. This is a little obvious, but I would be really interesting just to sit down and talk some shit with Tony Robbins for a little while. Mm -hmm. Which I guess is like pretty obvious. Number three. This is where I come up with my deep answer. Um... I guess they can be dead as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd probably sit down with like a again. It's like somewhat obvious, but like a Socrates or a Plato or like one of these one of these really one of these logicians, like philosophers, whose like thought processes underpinned a lot of of our modern understanding. It would be obviously good to probe them on stuff and it'd also be really fascinating to ask them of like how much of our interpretation Benjamin Franklin would be another guy I'd love to have to sit down with <laughs> uh, or maybe some like Brian Brian Cox is like some like pretty pretty hefty astrophysicist I think would also be a good sit a good sit down so science philosophy personal development or like the dark underbelly yeah, what the real what the real mechanics of truly sociopathic power systems look like. I think those would be my kind of at least my sectors. Yeah, that's great great group to have a great conversation. So just thank you so much for taking the time for this interview and uh, taking the time to help the audience with some information. But if anybody want to reach out to you or learn more about Olipop. I mean, our website, uh, first of all, thanks for having me, Rich. I really appreciate it. And then, yeah, drinkolipop.com is a pretty logical spot. You can also find us on Instagram at drinkolipop. We've got a great email uh, new email newsletter. We've actually got a really great text platform. I think those would be great places to start to get more information. And, and then if you're interested in the product, you know, reach out to us, pick it up or anything like that. Sounds great. Right. Awesome, man. Bye. Thank you so much. Appreciate it.